Skin. We're in a, we're, we're, we're three minutes over. Rebels. Rebels without a cause. Okay, good morning. We're continuing in our series on the parables of Jesus. And this morning we will be in, well, pretty well-known parable, I guess. The, parable, the Samaritan. Or what I've called the loving Samaritan. As opposed to the good Samaritan. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look this morning at the loving Samaritan, and this will be found in chapter uh, Luke chapter ten. <clears throat> Luke chapter ten verses twenty five through thirty seven. Let's pray first. Father, thanks this morning for the for the uh, gathering together of the saints, and um, thank you that despite the setbacks of the week and the steps that we took off the gospel path you were there to say this way and Holy Spirit you showed us Jesus when we most needed to see him and created hunger in our hearts to know the Father better uh, when we weren't hungry and so thank you for your mercy to us and always bringing us to the place we most need to be in the heart of the Father and help us this morning to understand and share and interact and uh, encourage one another in our mutual faith. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance... I wonder if that's an English translation for something. I mean, that's so that's so that's such a, a, a term of ours, half dead. What is half dead? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like half alive. What is half dead? I never understood that. I, and I didn't take the time to look into uh, the original language on that because I... I, grave and one foot out of I guess so, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway... Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him to the inn, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A lot in this parable. I hope we can be challenged with this morning. Um, just, uh, <coughs> I want to take a look first at the lawyer. Let's take a look first at this lawyer. Now, The, the lawyer <coughs> intended to put Jesus to the test. It's interesting the way that Luke words, he says, and behold. 
a lawyer stood up. And and when Jesus says that, he really wants to draw your attention to something. This is kind of a remarkable thing. And behold, this lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, when somebody was being instructed by a rabbi, receiving some instruction, they would typically be seated. And out of honor and respect to the teacher, you would stand up to give a response or something to ask a question. And so the text here makes the very excellent point that he stood up to put him to the test. So, first and foremost, this is a little bit disrespectful on the part of the lawyer. Um, which only makes sense because if his intentions were bad, you wouldn't expect him to necessarily be polite about it. Although sometimes the Pharisees were about that, right? Remember when they were, they were asking him about paying taxes to Caesar? They were, you know, they really were brown-nosing. Teacher, we know that you are no respecter of persons and that you teach rightly the way of God, you know, and they're just all buttering him up before they try to drop the bomb on him, right? As if Jesus was going to be taken by this. Jesus always knows, you know. Jesus, and, and, and certainly the Father always knows. And so he stood up to put him to the test. Um, and again, he was he was clearly listening to what Jesus had to say. Not a whole lot of additional background to this in terms of the text itself, because we just got done seeing the seventy-two come back from preaching about the kingdom and casting out demons and being all excited that the demons were subject to them and. Jesus being all excited and saying, Ah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. But, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written down in heaven. Right? And so, <coughs> something about, else about the Lord, he knows the two great commandments. Jesus says, what, uh, you know, tell me, what is it? What do you see in the law? What do you see in the law? <coughs> and... What, what's the significance of, of, of him giving the two great commandments? What's the, what's the significance of this here? He knows the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. The lawyers were experts in the law. That's why they were lawyers, right? And particularly in the first five books of Moses. And why would that be? Why would, why would the books of Moses be important for an expert in the law? Well, I think with the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. if you take a look at the first... Four, mm-hmm. uh, they deal with the love of God, mm-hmm. and then the rest deal with the love of man. Mm-hmm. So, what uh, is being said here is that if you show forth love, you will not sin against mm-hmm. man. You will not break the, any mm-hmm. of the commandments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's part. In part, yes, Beth. everybody. I'm um, yes. Everybody. Yeah. And, and and so a little bit more than that, a little more coverage than that. Uh, though those points are good. The, why the first five books? What goes on in the first oh, five uh, books? That was, that was for the first question. Right. Well, what goes on in the first five books over the April? It's all the law. Yeah, right. Right, not just the Ten Commandments, right? Because we know that embodied in so-called the Mosaic Law are 631 commands of some kind. 31 or 13? Uh, maybe 13, yeah, it could be, said the dyslexic teacher. So <laughs> it could just be that, it, you know, so it's important for the lawyers to know this, right? Because, because uh, if anyone has dyslexia, that's probably an unkind statement, so I apologize up front. Um, but the, um, the, the, the expert in the law would know everything about the Levitical law, about the sacrifices, about the little minutia of things, about the things also that the rabbis themselves added and the Pharisees uh, later on added to the law, um, and things that they actually taught in place of the law, things that they overindulged in in the law. And we actually talked about those a few, a few weeks ago. So he'd really have to know everything about the law. Yes, Mark. Well, I, I'm just looking at this again. It just says, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Mm-hmm. Then it, it seems like, well, the answer 
Apparently they thought keeping the law would merit eternal life. Yeah, I'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay. Yeah, we're going to cover that in a few minutes as well. Um, and it is interesting that Jesus didn't give him a direct answer. He turned around and asked with a question. There's nothing like answering a question with a question. Isn't that right, Kim? Kim hates it when I do that. I'll answer a question with a question. Um, it's not to be evasive. It's to... Uh, I, I, and I think certainly Jesus did it because he would know what was going on in the person's mind. Sometimes by asking a question, I think Jesus was able to get the person to see something he otherwise might not see. It. Because if your goal is to just sort of get invading... If, if, if you're asking someone a question and you ask it the way he does, automatically your walls are up to anything else. I mean, you're immediately putting yourself in the position of authority. You've got the right answers, and this other person better give you the right answer. Right? So he stood up to test Jesus. As if. As if. Right? And I think when we do that, so I think Jesus, this is Jesus' way in, in, in some sense of disarming him and sort of and sort of opening up the door a little bit for this guy to get something out of this. I think it's gracious on the Lord, as everything he does is. And then the lawyer did a nice job summing up the law, didn't he? I mean, the lawyer gave a tremendous answer. Jesus told him, he said, you have answered well. You have answered rightly. Because we know from Scripture, right, that it all comes down to this, right? This is the law and the prophets, Jesus said in one place. And, and Paul often repeated that as well. It can all be summed up in this. Love your neighbor, love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the whole, it's encapsulated in the entire law, which, by the way, pointed beyond itself to... Right, yeah. Which is why Jesus could give the command to love in a way that had never been given or understood before. What does it mean, by the way, as we continue to take a little look at the lawyer here, <clears throat> that after Jesus told him that's a good answer, you know, do this and live, which we'll talk about in a minute, what does it mean that, that, that he said, that, that when Luke says that the lawyer wanted to justify himself? What's going on with the lawyer here? What kind of character is he showing here? What's... what's what do you suppose is going on with this? This is a neat parable. Uh, this is leading up to the parable. And Susan, I'll let you give the answer next. This is leading up to the parable, of course. So th this is what we need to know about the people involved and all of the stuff that Jesus was able to just come out with this parable with. Yes, Susan. Oh, um, I think it was interesting that Jesus said, how do you read it? Mm -hmm. yeah. And as a lawyer, I think he was looking at the letter of the law. Mm -hmm and not the spirit of the law, mm -hmm. because he asks further, who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. He's yep. trying to get around <coughs> it. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. So I think there's some of that. I think there's definitely some of that, Seth. There's, there's self-righteousness in him. Yeah. Um, trying to somehow <coughs> earn what he's... I think so, too. Looking, <coughs> ...looking for here, which is eternal life. Yeah, I think he's... Uh, yeah, he's almost trying to say, Jesus, prove to me I'm not. Yeah. Like a level of arrogance. Yeah, definitely some arrogance. Arrogance, <coughs> arrogance is very easily had by anybody, isn't it? No. Yes. There's a hand over here. Okay. Well, I mean, when you try to test somebody, then you try to <coughs> test the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. You you place yourself at a higher position than mm -hmm. him or the person that you're testing. Yeah. So, <coughs> I mean, it, it 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 he's just an individual who, like I said, has an ego and and desires to. I don't know. Maybe be better than Jesus. I, I think Jesus was, you know, in, in the process of really exposing something in this guy because uh, I think we'll continue to develop that as we go along in the parable here. He was trying to expose some superficiality in this guy because he wasn't seeking to justify himself in a certain sense. Um, 
we know much of the Old Testament talks about God's concern for justice and, and God's concern for a number of things. And there's a certain sense in which he was about to just sort of, you know, in asking that question, he was almost saying, I think, you know, sort of tell me, Jesus, how it is that I'm not. You know what I mean? Sort of doing uh, doing that. It, it, that'll make more sense in a few minutes. I know it's a little vague now. At the very end, though, I do think it's possible... Um, I think it's possible, as we see at the end of the, uh, after the parable, when he asked which of these three proved to be a neighbor, and the lawyer said the one who showed him mercy. And um, I, I think that the lawyer sort of, maybe by the time Jesus got, I mean, I, I know that Jesus can take anyone and do anything with that person. I think by the time this parable was done, the lawyer might have had a little bit more insight as to what he had misunderstood. Because he didn't just sort of... Uh, there were some people that have suggested, various commentators that, you know, as we'll talk about also in, in some moments about the, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, that this lawyer couldn't even say the Samaritan is the one that proved to be a good neighbor. He so despised the Samaritan, he couldn't even say the Samaritan proved to be a, uh, the good neighbor. But I think he said, the reason why he said, uh, the one that showed him mercy, I think that shows he got a little bit of depth of understanding from what the law was pointing towards. I was just wondering if you thought maybe the lawyer knew the Columbo kind of trick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe he did. <laughs> Jesus knew it. Jesus wrote it. Um, give me some scripture on the connection of the law to mercy. <coughs> what, what? Yes. Ooh. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came to Jesus. Yep, so there's that particular contrast. I didn't have that one in mind, but there is that. The rich yep. young ruler. The rich young ruler. What? Elaborate. Well, uh, he asked also, what must I do? Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus told him to show mercy mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Uh, giving everything that he had mm-hmm. to the poor. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. He couldn't display that kind of mercy. Mm-hmm. Beth, did you? A desire of mercy and yes. not sacrifice. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, that was one, right? And, and uh, yes, Seth. Um, Micah 6. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, um, and to walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, thank you for those. And then, of course, when Jesus was blasting the Pharisees and that series of woes, he said, "You tie the mint and cumin and everything, but you, you neglect mercy and compassion. You, the weightier, you know, these you should have done without neglecting the former, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law." Mercy, loving kindness. These things are built into the law. They're built into them. They bring about, yes? I just have a bit of a different observation from this spoiler. It probably was arrogance and pride, but I think I detect a lot of fear. Because these guys must have known that they were standing in the presence of truth. Mm-hmm. We squirm. Good point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. I think Jesus ultimately <laughs> pointed out that yes, um, you being a lawyer mm-hmm. have studied and know the mm-hmm. scripture and intellectually you understand, mm-hmm. but at the end he says you're right, but mm-hmm. go and do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jesus mm-hmm. is pointing out that you know it, but you're mm-hmm. not doing it. Could be too. Yeah. I, I really think as a lawyer, 
he wanted to make put in the forefront his understanding of the law over mm-hmm. Jesus' understanding of the law. Mm-hmm. Could be. I mean, by the way, this was we'll talk about eternal life too in, in the course of this. But that was a big, big question. That was a question that was always raised in the Jewish synagogue and among the Jewish people. Was what? How does one get eternal life? That was a very important topic among the Jews of that time. What is eternal life? How do we get it? Okay. <clears throat> a couple of things, sort of things we need to know so that we can better grasp the meaning and the intent of the parable. So, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not a good place to have to go alone. Being known in those days as the path of blood. Okay? The road was about 17 miles long and descended 3,300 feet from start to finish. So, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was about a 3,300 foot descent. And it was a place of limestone cliffs and things like that and good hiding places. In a way... It could possibly be referred to as the valley of the shadow of death at times, you know, because this is where these <laughs> these guys hung out, waiting for people to come down alone. The road was uninhabited. It wasn't like villages along the way. It was just a long stretch of lonely road. And, uh, and as the name and the story relate, right, these sort of, as the King James would call it, lewd fellows of the baser sort <laughs> would hang out along this way. Some things you just can't capture in contemporary English, right? Some things that the, you get out of the, uh, the King James, some of that language is just... What a poetic way of saying something negative about someone. You know what I mean? I mean, wouldn't you rather be referred to as a lewd fellow of the baser sort than a rude, you know, a rude, uh, you know, lustful pornographic pig? There's something a little bit more sweet about it. A lewd fellow of the baser sort. What is a baser? Well, uh, he was very base. And everything they did appealed base. to a very base, primal base. sort of human uh, greed and lust and, and self-indulgence, you know. And lewd, we know what that is, so, yeah. Okay, and Scripture certainly, uh, Scripture details the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, okay? So we understand what's going on what kind of road this is that a person has to take. It's very important that we understand why Jesus is using a Samaritan as the, the hero in the story. And so we know a few things about this. If you'll turn over to John, uh, I'll give you a few passages from there. John chapter 4, verse 9. This is the, uh, this is the narrative of the Jesus encountering the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And uh, the Samaritan woman, well, I'll go back a verse. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay? Number one. Number two, yes? How did she know he was a Jew? They knew things here from accent and dress and, you know, you know probably Cultural. probably just... Probably just his accent, probably his dialogue. I mean, we know that uh, Peter, for example, he was detected by the people around him when Jesus was being questioned on trial, or not on trial, as it were. He said, we know that you were with him. Your accent gives you away. You know, you're a Galilean. So, that's how I think they knew. Those are some of the details you don't get. You know, Scripture doesn't tell you everything, right? It just doesn't. That's why it's always important to find out as much as you can historically, contextually, all these things, because you need these things to fill in your understanding. Otherwise, you can take a story like this and turn it into some foolish reason for having the CVS Good Samaritan van and thinking that's the equivalent, right? Uh, 848. 
The Jews answered him, talking about Jesus. Right? This is after Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. Is that John? You know, that, sometimes I think that gives me motivation and, and sort of incentive to just blast you know, the, the, the ones that make fun of the religion. But I know that's not what it's for. But. The Jews answered him and said, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? You're a Samaritan. And your mother dresses you funny kind of thing, right? Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? I mean, it was an insult to call someone a Samaritan, right? And then over in Luke chapter 9, 51 to 54, this is interesting. Maybe, maybe this is partly why this came to Jesus' mind about using a Samaritan in the story, as well as, of course, correcting the, uh, the lawyer. 951 through 54. <coughs> um, when the days drew near uh, for him to be taken up, in other words, the Lord Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Once again, they sort of knew where he was going. When you were going to Jerusalem, you had a certain look about you. <laughs> And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, and it doesn't say in this text, but I think in Matthew it says, you know not what you say. And they went on to another village. So the the Samaritans wouldn't receive him because he basically looked like he was heading towards Jerusalem. He was a Jew of a different type than them, as I'll further hopefully uh, explain to you in a few moments. They just wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume them. So you can see this animosity has been going on for it has been going on for a very long time. A good 750 years before Christ, this has been happening. Okay, uh, about 750 years before Christ, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, which included Samaria, and and so there was a deportation that took place. But the ones that left were left behind uh, intermarried with some of the conquerors, sort of making a bit of a half breed. Okay, so. For this reason, they were thought of as impure from the rest of the Israelites because, again, they were half mixed. All right. Um, if you're a Harry Potter fan, his mother was a mudblood, right? He was a muggle and his father was, a, was not. Um, so you had this sort of reason why they thought of them as lesser than. And, of course, that just builds contention. I mean, it, not much has changed, has it, in a couple thousand years. Think about the things that separate us some of the real glaring ones, think about the difference between the Protestants and the Catholics in Ireland for years. Now, obviously, that wasn't just a strictly religious thing. Um, but it had a lot to do with this interplay between religion and politics. And this kind of thing goes on a lot. And not, you know, does it go on in between Presbyterians and Baptists? Yeah, to a certain sense. I mean, I think there's lots of things that, uh, you know, sort of potentially meaningful distinctions. Um, in terms of ethnicity, look at look at the um, the Turkish people and Armenians. Okay, I'm sorry, Ar- Armenians. I always get people get those two. Armenians are not Armenians. Well, they could be. You could be an Armenian Armenian, uh, but you're not necessarily Armenian because you're Armenian. But the Turks, the Turks had a genocide against the Armenians, and so obviously that's a that's a much greater reason to sort of hate them. But to to the Jews, remember how the Jews they they. they they had the oracles of God. They had everything from God. They were the chosen people. And they were the ones that had the law. They were the ones that had Sinai. They were the ones that had the temple. They were the ones that had everything. So anything less than that, this was a great problem for the Jews forever and ever and ever. Paul had to confront this in his letters throughout his entire life. 
is this continual sense that there was something special about the Jews because they were the ones that received the law of God. Something about them, despite the fact that the very same Old Testament told them that it's not because of you that I chose you. Don't, don't get yourself all confused. If you were to read Ezra chapter 4, you would see that the returning Jews refused to allow the resident Sumerians in Israel to assist in the building of the temple. Okay? They refused to allow them to help build. And certainly, this Samaritan would not be welcome in a Jewish town. Okay? So to come riding into town with a, with a half-dead, bloody Jew over your donkey did not bode well for you, especially if they knew you were Samaritan. There's a presumption of guilt. Right? Uh, also interesting to note if the man so, so he, he ultimately puts him up in an inn right and then he goes away but if he doesn't go away if he, if he hadn't come back there's a problem because if a man had no means of paying even in this situation he could very well be sold as a slave to cover the debt that was sort of incurred while he was at the inn so the Samaritan also had to have known this and so his intention to return and even up with the innkeeper was, was that much stronger as well so he, he cared for this man sort of beyond just sort of helping him out. He, he, he took the whole thing upon himself. So, so just again, a few items there that we need to sort of understand some background about the significance of Jesus choosing this particular story at this particular time and drawing out that distinction between the Jews and, and the so-called Samaritan Jews or the ones that... Right? <clears throat> and you remember, they worshipped differently because that's what the woman said to Jesus. You Jews say that we should worship on this mountain. We Samaritans worship over here. <clears throat> Jesus says, you know, you got it all wrong. Okay. I think it's important that we ask this question then about eternal life. We'll talk about this a little bit because that was the initial question that the lawyer gave to Jesus. Right? He stood up and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again, this was a huge question among the Jewish people. This was a question that came up all the time in the studies, in the synagogue. So, what is eternal life? Or, or perhaps better yet, when is eternal life? Your thoughts. What is eternal life? Or when is eternal life? And maybe I'm giving a hint in the answer to the first question by asking the second question. Here or not? It actually is before you're born because people are elected before... Okay. So, and it goes on forever. I, I think in the big picture you're right. I don't think that would probably have been on their minds, but certainly in the big picture you're right. Although, while we were yet sons of disobedience and children of wrath, we knew nothing of eternal life at all. Yes. I'm thinking that perhaps eternal life begins <coughs> fully mm-hmm. uh, with the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we are reunited with our bodies mm-hmm. and we are ascending into heaven. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, spiritually, when it says that we die, you know, that our spirit goes to be with God. But mm-hmm. I think for to, for the whole purpose of what the question you're asking, I think it's when after the second coming of Christ or after the second. Yeah, coming. I think that's the fullness of it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we have three answers. Uh, Mike. I don't know. I guess I look at it. You know, verses that say. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives mm-hmm. in me. And I think that when you start that that walk, that abiding in the vine, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I think that your your vision, the horizon becomes much much farther out, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it's like 
in a sense, it sort of starts then at that conversion when, yes. when you lay it down because yeah. <coughs> what's death other than some little hiccup that sort of like changes the scenario a yeah. little bit, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. ultimately, I think we want our faith to be that. The death is a hiccup. I've never heard it described that way, but <laughs> I would have to agree. We may wrestle with that, but death is a hiccup. Be a great title for a book, brother. Let's get to work on it. <laughs> I think that um, I think that actually we become a part of the kingdom of God when we come to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. But I still think that eternal life begins at the second coming. So if you think it begins, go ahead. Well, Scripture says we're translated uh, from darkness into His uh, uh, His. Uh, yeah, translated in eternal darkness and his marvelous light. Yeah, and that begins that conversion, right? Uh, and that's the beginning of eternity, in my opinion, because um, eternity—you can't look at it from the elect perspective. Mm-hmm. But at any moment, if we were to die, apart from the grace of God, mm-hmm. we would not have eternal mm-hmm. life. So again, it's it, it's the placing a person in union with Christ. Yep. And when you are in union with Christ, then eternal life begins. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a old things are all things are become. Yeah. So there's certainly a qualitative, you know, this this whole idea of and this you get in certain circles. I mean, I was certainly early on in much more fundamentalist type Baptist faith, and it was always about dying and going to heaven. It was always about sort of getting out of here. It was always about being out of here. And really, someone that was, I think that I studied that was instrumental in leading me away from that thought uh, was N.T. Wright. Uh, that he, yeah, he's got some other issues uh, <laughs> that I wouldn't describe to. Uh, but he also has, I mean, his work on the resurrection of the Son of God, for example, is a mammoth, mammoth work. Uh, a brilliant scholar, a phenomenal teacher, um, Anglican uh, archbishop at one point. But anyway, he would write about that. And that's when I first began to sort of get this notion of Eternal life begins here and now for these very reasons. Eternal life, if we read John 3.36, and here's scripture for it. So our opinions really aren't worth a whole lot, right, unless they sort of line up with scripture. Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So part of having eternal life, that qualitative here and now part, is no longer having the wrath of God because Jesus juxtaposes the two. Right? He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, the wrath of God abides in him. That's part of eternal life. It doesn't say will have. Right. Yes. Right. John 6, 54. I'm sorry, 539. I'm just going to give you a few from John. I'm sure there's others. Plenty that I miss. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. See? This is why the lawyer asked the question the way that he did. How do I inherit eternal life? And this is why Jesus answered the way he did. Because he knew that they searched the Scriptures because they thought that in them you have eternal life. So he was able to ask them, what does the law say? The system was never anyone as smart and as wise as Jesus. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness of me. The person that has Jesus has eternal life. I'm still stuck on this. and I'm wondering... In the translation, mm-hmm. okay, from the Greek to the English, could there be, and I'm just asking, a, a different 
way of saying will have as opposed to has. No, I think it's part of the is, constant. Is, is I, it, I'm, I'm not a. I do know this. I am in, by no means am I a, a student of the languages of the Hebrew and Greek languages. But I know the people that write things like the ESV and the NASB and some of these very literal translations, and even the NIV, of course, which wouldn't be as literal, but still would communicate the same idea. All of them would use this existing thing. This is happening here and now. Mm-hmm. Here and now. So it's not just a matter of... And there is, there is that constant sense of, I have some of it now, I'm going to have all of it later. But it certainly has begun now. It certainly has begun now. Uh, John 6.54 Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mm. Right? He has eternal life, and I will raise him up. Right? So it's, it's it's part and parcel of the whole thing. Because I think if we don't grasp that we have eternal life here and now already, we miss an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk more about what eternal life, how we live out that eternal life. Yes. I had a question, wondering. Um, gathering from who the lawyer was and, and what his background mm-hmm. is, um, do you think we can find out exactly what the lawyer thinks eternal life is? Or, 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 or how Jesus is trying to kind of get him to question whether he actually knows what eternal life is? I don't think the, for the Jews, eternal life always meant sort of beyond the grave. I mean, it was always uh, their thought at the time, it was always sort of about the hereafter. Jesus brought a teaching on eternal life that was completely sort of new. That's why he emphasizes it as much as he does in John. John is such a messianic-oriented gospel and so seeped, and steeped in the Old Testament. And yet he uses eternal life in a way that they would not have thought about it as much. But I suppose in a way that if someone were to think about the Old Testament uh, in the ways and in the categories that it's given, they would come to that conclusion if they were... Uh, because... Many of them were rebuked for not coming to that conclusion. I think, like looking at the Old Testament and what they must have thought the eternal life was, there's a lot of, a lot of a big question mark as to what it actually was. Not having the information mm-hmm. gained from the New Testament, mm. oh yeah, which we can gather quite a bit of what the afterlife mm. was. Um, there's, there's a limited amount of information, I think. Well, eternal life came to them in the person of Jesus. Eternal life came to earth in the person of Christ. Uh, to be united to him is to be united to eternity. You can't speak of the eternality, the eternal life in Christ uh, apart from him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... To the, yeah, it's deep. The, the, whole, the whole concept of eternal life to the Jew was much more vague. Yeah. Um, and that's why in Psalm 16 when David says I will not allow my body to undergo decay mm-hmm. there's something after yeah. but we don't quite understand yeah. what the after is mm-hmm. yeah. and Jesus comes on the scene and says I'm the resurrection and the life mm-hmm. and he who believes in me even though he die yet shall he mm-hmm. live mm-hmm. exactly and therefore there's this this extension yep. new covenant extension where so, Jesus is expounding about what they don't That's right. And not only does he say, even if he dies, yet shall he live. What does he also go on to say right after that? He who lives shall never die. He who lives will never die. So we have to think in terms of eternal life here and now. And yeah, we're going to see the fullness of it. I want to jump on uh, what Todd said. Um, I spoke with uh, uh, a Jewish fellow in New York and I 
with some deep conversation. I didn't know they had Jews in New York. Oh, me too. They're all over the place. It's like, yeah. it's, they're like ants. Yes. <laughs> and uncles. Uh, so the, uh, I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think is going to happen after you die? He said, nothing. Yeah. I said, don't you believe in uh, eternal life? Don't you believe in all here? Yeah. life here after? You? No, there's, there's, that, that, that's, that's not true. Yeah, we're dead. Once we're dead, we're that's ended. We're all like this. Everything is over. Now I don't know if that is a sect like uh, the Reformed Jew or the uh, um, Orthodox, Orthodox or the Hasidic. Or I would doubt it would be the Hasidic, but I, I would think it might be the conservative or the. Uh, I don't know. It's a far removed theology from the Jewish thought that we're dealing with here in this text. No, 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 no. It's no. It's just a fair question. If you recall. No, you wouldn't. A couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion about who believes in heaven and hell. And I went through, if you recall that discussion you that were here, I shared from a Pew Research article put out in 2015. And it looked at denominationally within the Christian faith and then outside of the Christian faith, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews, what percentage of people believed in heaven and hell? What percentage of people believed in an afterlife? And I don't have that handy, but it wasn't a real high number among Jewish, professing Jewish believers. Because... Uh, it, it probably be the equivalent of you know a, a Catholic trying to understand you know why priests can't why, why priests don't marry or something you know what I mean it's just a the it's so far removed from you know the the priests of not marrying evolved over a number of years it's amazing to me that Roman Catholicism will trace itself back to you know the first century to claim that it's a first it is the first century church and at the same time so for years they had married uh, well of course they were all wrong anyway they wouldn't have priests. In that sense of the word, there's no such thing as a, you know, as a, a separation between a priest and a clergy. That talk of clerical talk is useless, confusing, uh, spoiler brain talk. But um, so the, I guess the short answer to that is just, I suppose, it's just one sect of. Just like if you were to ask a ten different questions to ten different types of quest, uh, Christians, <clears throat> but the bottom line answer is, well, what does the scripture say? I mean, that's what the answer always is. Which is why Jesus asked the lawyer, what does the scripture say? Finally, over in 10.28, this is something you hold on to. Uh, go back a little bit. So Jesus answered, says, I told you the works that I do in my Father's name, they witness about me. You don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life. Neither shall they ever perish. Right? Right? No man can pluck them out of my hand. My Father who is given to them is greater than all. The Father and I are one. He, I give them eternal life. So, this is a here and now thing. There is a very here and now component to eternal life, Mike. I've got to run up to practice the worship. Yeah. Just, just real quick, not, and not to divert from, from your teaching here, which is amazing, by the way. Um, but... Just another kind of neat application of, of this whole parable yeah. and, and a way that we use it kind of, especially in like mission circles, yeah, so it yeah, kind of paints yeah, yeah. this picture mm-hmm. of how to, how to do good work mm-hmm. and, and it kind of breaks it down to three pieces and that's true of any type of outreach or missions or mm-hmm. anything. You, you, have, you have relief, you have rehabilitation, you have development. Mm-hmm. So in the context of this, of, this, uh, of this parable, the relief is coming across a guy that's dying on the road, right? you got to stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. So yes. take it in the context of someone who's overdosing on yes. drugs, right? Yes, like the relief, thank you. The relief is you have to bring them back, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. that's like by any means necessary. Yes. You know, in mission circles, it 
people are dying of starvation. They need food. If they, you know, if they have cholera, we got to fix their water. Mm-hmm. Well, the next step is is rehabilitation, which mm-hmm. is bringing them back to the level that they were pre-incident, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's sort of like bringing bringing the Jew to the inn, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of yep. nursing him back to health. Yep. And then the next step is is development, mm-hmm. which is is not really talked about here, but it would ask the question in the context of, of this parable: mm-hmm. What's wrong with the road? Mm-hmm. Why are people stealing on that road? You know, what is it yep. because they don't have jobs? Yep. Is there a lack of resources? Yep. What's happening with evangelism and discipleship? Yep. Why do they need to do that? So, in the context of the drug addict, it's what's bringing you to use? Mm-hmm. You know, and, good, good. and sort of like fixing that because if you don't go through that progression, if you stay at relief, then you're just constantly handing out. Nothing grows. Nothing gets better. Nothing. Absolutely, it's such a great point. It's just a, it's just a totally different way of sort mm-hmm. of taking that and like how to do. Any type of outreach or yeah. as well, you know. So I gotta go. We watched a movie. Just made he made me think of a movie where this guy was going among all the poor and the destitute. I forget what it was. We watched it, and uh, there was this young guy just going around talking to homeless people who were just a lot of them are drug addicted and disoriented, and you know, sharing the gospel. Would give him a track, and you know, he think he shared the gospel with them. They'll never see him again. And he went from person to person and get the person to pray the prayer. And if you get on to pray the prayer, you just moved on to the next person. So that's not the same at all as what Mike's talking about. Very helpful, uh, by the way. Um, that, that's well, good well, good to keep in mind for when we talk next week about some further application and, and that kind of thing. I was just going to say where, where, where the church has the, the truth, mm. um, you know, the world has the relief. They have the rehabilitation. Not always successful, but they do have it. Mm. But they don't have the recovery. Right. The recovery is the soul. Mm-hmm. Why do Why does man do what man does? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's where we take the high the high road and and yeah. we tell the world. It's what a they great do. question. Uh, we could we can even engage this a little bit further. I hope I'll remember this subject next week. Um, or oh, somebody remind me next week to maybe bring up the link in terrorism. All right. What he said something made me think about terrorism. Um, don't tell him that. <laughs> He's not here. I think I'd Would you bring up the Lincoln terrorist? Thank you. I will. Very likely the lawyer didn't even know really what eternal life was, as we just sort of discussed. He wouldn't have known what he was really asking. It's, other than how do I sort of arrive at, how do I get to the kingdom of God? At least they wanted that. Right? They knew they didn't have it, whatever it was. They knew that he, di- he knew that he didn't have it. He knew it was something to sort of aspire to and in his mind work towards. Probably their understanding largely came from Daniel chapter 12 in the second verse. Because, you know, Daniel 12 was right in the midst of all the eschatological stuff. And he says, uh, uh, well, go back to the first verse. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since... uh, since has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So probably that's where much of the understanding of eternal life came from. And maybe that's why Paul in Romans, when he's particularly addressing the Jewish part of the audience to whom he was writing, because uh, he was writing to both Gentiles and Jews, but he addressed the Jews in the third chapter, I think, when he was saying that um, you know, those who seek uh, selfish things versus those who seek to, to, to do good. And he talks about them attaining to eternal life. How we don't confuse that with works is a different thing. 
<coughs> I think there's a real sort of simple thought here. It's a strange question from the lawyer in the first place to ask, what must, what must one do to inherit eternal life? Now, the Jews certainly had an understanding of inheritance that has nothing to do with performance. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it was just really the firstborn. They got the biggest part of the inheritance often. Which, by the way, since we're united to Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation, not meaning the first creature, but this is just a little sort of side note. The firstborn in Scripture, when it refers to Jesus, isn't talking about his material creation. He's talking about his status as the firstborn. He's talking about the status of the one who inherits everything. That's, it goes deeper than that, but that's part of it. Why would the lawyer ask it that way? Why would the lawyer, I wonder why the lawyer asked. I don't know. Uh, I just was musing about this. Why we ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life but we know we're co-heirs with Christ uh, in the middle of the study this I got distracted into a sermon by Spurgeon on you know what it means to be a co-heir with Christ it's a good distraction well the law was all do mm-hmm. do this and live yes. do this and I'll do that yes. so it's kind of natural yes yep and which sort of segues right into my next question which I had which was what does the Pentateuch have to say about the life and the law right do this and live do this and die I set before you this day a blessing and cursing you know, do this and you shall live. And it's interesting too, there are a lot of things that you would die for in the Old Testament. I don't think a lot of times people died in the Old Testament for doing the things that the lost city had to die because I don't think people sold them out as much as they would have, you know? Um, is it possible? Yes? I'm just thinking it's really truly though an unenlightened, um, yeah, simple reaction mm-hmm. to the law. Yes. Um, because the law is meant to show us our need yeah. and, and see where grace truly comes from. Mm-hmm. So it's not a yep. right understanding the lawyer has. Yes. And the Old Testament law wasn't just mm-hmm. works based. No, it wasn't at all. But again, the uh, the covenant, in a certain sense, covenant. Well, I won't get into the distinction of the covenants because I think that's. I mean, talk about volumes and volumes and volumes of books, right? Um. Is it possible to do anything to gain eternal life? Can, can salvation, in theory, be accomplished by the law? It, well, if you do it, yeah. Okay. Well, that brings to me. Are there two ways to salvation? Again, in theory. In other words, if we could completely fulfill the law of God, would we thereby gain eternal life? Oh, this is a setup. Who said that? April? Seth is... I mean, you have to get rid of your original nature. You just got to the point. Yeah. That's the main point. That is a problem. Uh, this is something that I've heard discussed from time to time. It's, yeah, well, in a sense, the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the people, right? Which obviously, there's truth to that. But it's not when it comes to eternal life. Don't forget the law was given 430 years after the promise. Okay? So you got to go way back to the Abrahamic promise. How did you... I don't know... I, not fair, but it's interesting that the Jews got tripped up on the law when the law came 430 years after the Abrahamic promise, who was the father of the Jews and the father of the circumcision. It's amazing that they did, but and Paul knew that it was amazing that it did, but Paul had to be enlightened because he was that kind of a Jew. Galatians 3.1 answers the question, uh, 3.21, very succinctly. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could, give, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And righteousness is part of the whole discussion of justification and salvation. 
But the scripture imposed everything on the sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. If there was a law that could impart life, then righteousness would be by the law. Never was it possible to attain eternal life by the law. And, and for the very reason Seth gave, you, you know, you get the problem of your, of your human nature, your sin nature, as Paul waxes eloquent on in Romans 5, when he talks about our identity in Adam. So that should put that question to bed, uh, to rest. It's not possible, nor it could be. We could never, ever, if we kept every jot and tittle of the law, be able to earn eternal life. Yes? I think, too, that in some ways it has a lot to do with the fact that we're created. Mm-hmm. You know, the domino effect is is that if, if you're not perfect to begin with, mm-hmm. then, right. you know, heaven is, heaven is not for you. You mm-hmm. won't be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that it takes something that is perfect to mm-hmm. get you there. Yeah. And, and, and this is helpful too in our discussion of understanding eternal life because, again, you hear much of this talk of getting to heaven. <coughs> Understand that there's the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why it's also helpful to remember that we have eternal life here and now as well. It isn't just that we die, we go to heaven, we're out of here. Eternal life is the new heavens and the new earth. This is where this takes place. And so we, we tend to sort of locate, spatially locate heaven with an address. Okay? And we're on our way to that address. That's just not so. That's just not so. When we think about heaven and the kingdom of God, you have to think much more in terms of what life is and what relationship to God is and that kind of thing and not in terms of a particular geography. Okay? Yes, hand. Harrison. I'm not really sure how to ask this question. Maybe it's kind of a childish one. Those are the hardest ones to answer. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is a tough passage because there's a lot of discussion there. That's uh, my my honest answer is I, I can't give you a good answer, and a faithful answer. I I can search that out a little bit with you, or maybe I get a chance to think about it and look it up. Uh, but I've had that same question come to my way. We're talking about people dying here. How can we talk about the new heavens and the new earth and people dying? Right? Is that what started gone at you? Yeah, because living for 900 years, that's still a long time, but I'm still going to die. That's right. <laughs> right. So whatever they're talking about there, it's not that. Because we know from other scripture, that I, so either we have a contradiction there or it's talking about something else. And I think that, uh, you know, some people have used that passage, that same general area to talk about, well, yeah, there'll be animals in the new heaven and the new earth because, you know, a child is going to play on an ass, you know, den. And, and, you know, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Or is that highly symbolic of something else? Is that a metaphor? And so I think I would have to take all that into account and I'd give you a terrible answer if I tried to answer it right now. You know? But it's a great question. I would, I would search it out. You know, Search it out, dig in, get some commentary on it, get, some, get an understanding as to the type of, <clears throat> the type of uh, literature that is. Is it, is it poetry in that particular place? 
because Isaiah goes in and out of Hebrew poetry. Is it, uh, is it, is it, is it eschatological? You know, just just understanding the, lo- the the type of literature that it is, because that that would be helpful. I have a terrible time with the Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's. You know, I have a couple of commentaries on Isaiah, and I'm, I'm probably going to look that question up now. Um, try to think that through a little bit more. Yeah. Just have a quick question. Do you do you think that heaven is not as much a place as a state of mind or state of being? What is it? It's really, it, it, it mostly has to do with full relationship. It has to do with Jesus saying, "I come that they have life and they have it more abundantly." Yeah. Um, and when we when we think about uh, you know uh, there's a mansion and streets paved with oh, gold yeah. and all We've that. We've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Yeah, yeah, I got I got one. It's got like a new refrigerator in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm 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 not leaning in that direction at all, uh-huh. and I'm trying to get some kind of an understanding. And maybe this is another study. Uh-huh. Uh, some of it is uh, about heaven. I know that uh, Mark has Fuller has suggested reading the book Heaven, and uh-huh. I, I never have. But maybe there's some answers in that that could could actually yeah. guide me better. And we know it's you know there's some things that give you a clue along the way. At some point, it said the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. How can any temple you're building with hands? So we know that God's not spatially located. Yeah. He just isn't. Uh, and I know that ruins a lot of our sort of, um, not childish, but childlike understandings. It's okay to be childish in a sense, or childlike, but not childish. Uh, heaven's not a place I'm out of here and going to. Heaven's not a place where my, my dead relatives are up there doing the things they used to do on here, except without a body. You know, he says... We could talk about that. Maybe we should have a study on it. Um, let me just close with this to think about for next week. Showing mercy and loving others is part of what it means to have eternal life here and now. Okay? And I think this is what the parable is driving at. It is not a prescription for a future life only. It is evidence of eternal life now. It is the spiritual equivalent of having a pulse and breathing. It is to the born-again person what a pulse and breathing is to a person found on the side of the road that you check to see. Okay? Showing mercy and loving others is part of what it means to have eternal life here and now. And we'll uh, close on that so that we can, people can get upstairs and all that stuff. And uh, we'll ask the new dad to pray for us.